So first off, it's not a professional podcast. You can say fuck. You don't have to <laughs> be serious. I didn't realize that was the <laughs> distinction. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, more or less, I think. Librarians are really uptight sometimes. That would be the <laughs> demonetization I've heard so much about. As soon as you say fuck, yeah. you're not a professional anymore. They take away yeah, your own. We don't even ass. have a Patreon. <laughs> Joke's on you. We don't make money. Right. <laughs> uh, but I am kind of curious if... Um, how aware are you? How aware are you for like what's going on in Library Land discourse? Uh, are we talking about book bans or something else? Anything that has come across your radar? Because I know you. I read. mean, book bans are the big one, uh, and mm-hmm. you know, Drag Queen Story Hour, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, all the culture war nonsense and defunding and shrill, swivel-eyed loons joining city councils and library boards. Everybody hates gender queer. I mean, is there anything else I'm missing? I mean, there's still like decolonizing Dewey, but I don't know if that's a thing anyone's really paying attention to. It feels like there are more pressing <laughs> issues than that. We were paying attention. We wanted to pay attention to it. Yeah. <laughs> our, our podcast used to be way more fun, and then all this shit started happening. Right. Yeah. yeah. And people started taking us seriously. Oh, and then there's the Internet Archive and the um, e- controlled digital lending. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 And the awesome Democratic Socialist running the ALA. That's good. Uh, yes. Yeah, we had Emily on um, when she was still campaigning. Mm-hmm. But that, that I think that's all the library stuff I'm following right now. I don't know. There's probably other okay. stuff, but uh, it gets lost. Uh, life comes at you fast in the w- waning years of human civilization. <laughs> hmm. I'm always saying this. True, true words. <laughs> Okay. Oh, yeah. Let's go. Justin, I'm a Turing complete von Neumann machine, and my pronouns are he and they. I'm Sadie. I work IT at a public library, and my pronouns are they, them. I'm Jay. I am a music library director who succumbs to the the foibles of recording companies every hour of every day, literally. Um, and Same. my pronouns are he, him. <laughs> and we have a guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Corey Doctorow. I'm a writer and activist, and my pronouns are 808.3876. Just a little a little dewy humor there. Everyone who listens will appreciate it, we promise. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Justin, are you needed? Oh, there you go. Okay. No, it's just whispering. Formally, I, it's I like he, him. Just, just for avoidance <laughs> of doubt here, but, but also uh, literature by topic, rhetoric and anthologies, rhetoric of fiction, genre writing, mysteries, horror, Western science fiction and fantasy, writing science fiction and fantasy is my other pronoun. You had that in your back pocket. <laughs> yeah, that was quick. <laughs> well, I suppose you're wondering I why thought... I called you all here today. <laughs> Oh shit, at the tables of turn. <laughs> shit. I thought it was on our podcast. No. So we asked Corey, <laughs> we asked Corey to come on to talk about his uh, latest book. And uh, we were a little behind the times. We were wanting to talk about choke point capitalism and then shitification. In the meantime, he fucking went out and pumped out a whole new book. So uh, we got to talk about that one too. So 
we'll be talking about Chokepoint Capitalism and the Internet Con. But first, we don't normally do news with a guest, but I thought you might like this one. Google will shield AI users from copyright challenges within limits. So Google has joined uh, a couple other companies in saying that, look, you can use our, our GANs, our generative networks for creating images. And if, uh, if it spits out something that the court finds violates copyright, we'll cover you, asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. And I, I just thought this one was really interesting because the way I've been thinking about both the, the training data and the outputs, it seems like the big companies are really just willing to eat any legal costs while they get themselves set up. Mm-hmm. It just seems like the latest iteration of that. But I don't know, Corey, what's your take on that? I have thoughts. I was going to say. Um, <laughs> so feel free I, to jump in. There's a kind of monkey's paw getting ready to curl around people who are worried about AI. I, I like, look, I think it's fine to be worried about AI. Like our bosses definitely have like insatiable horniness for firing us and replacing us with software, it, even and especially when the software is not very good at doing our jobs. Like we have all called the switchboard that used to be staffed by a human who was good at their job and could connect us to the person we needed to talk to. And then just spent like 10 minutes going 17, no 17, 17, one, seven operator, operator. Like they will replace every screenwriter, radiologist, taxi driver, librarian, you know, they're going to replace them all with, with things that are sort of that equivalent if they can get away with it. So there's a good reason to be worried about it. And, and particularly in the creative arts, because our bosses really hate us. But um, I think that uh, there's on the one hand, like a cold, hard reality of how copyright stands today, which is that it's just not an infringement to take a transient copy of a work and then do mathematical analysis on it. Like it just isn't like, I'll stipulate I am on the lunatic fringe of copyright liberalization, but my arch enemies, like people who wouldn't piss on me if I was on fire. The one thing we agree on is that the precedent does not support the idea that uh, making transient copies of works or subjecting them to mathematical analysis or then embedding that analysis in a model is an infringement. So there are a bunch of creative workers who want to make it an infringement. There are a bunch of lawyers who have gotten creative workers to join class action suits that accuse it of being an infringement. It's kind of worth asking what it is those lawyers are, uh, are, are smoking. And I think that they are uh, operating on the assumption that although it's probably not an infringement that these companies did so much shady shit to acquire their corpuses that they're just going to like pay lots of money to just never have that come out during discovery. And since they're swimming in like tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars in market capitalization, like why not? Right. And by all means, right. Like, take $400 million away from Sam Altman and give it to Sarah Silverman. That is like the world is a better place when that happens for sure. But the problem is that if we actually do change copyright to make that an infringement, I don't think it makes creative workers better off. I think that just triggers an environment in which all of the contracts we sign say from now on, non-negotiably, whoever it is that's employing you has to acquire your right to train works as a condition of you working with them. And if you don't like it, you can go pound sand and then they'll just train models and fire you, right? And it's just a roundabout way of transferring a new exclusive bargainable right from a worker who has very little power, but has been brainwashed to think that they're an LLC with an MFA and that they are bargaining business to business in the spirit of good old American enterprise with other firms across the board, boardroom table. And, uh, and, and it's just like a roundabout way to transfer that right to them. I think that there are other ways that we can protect creative workers from this stuff. So like, 
liability uh, for some workers. You know, if there the, there are some workers who, if they were replaced with software and then that software killed someone, their bosses, if they had to assume the liability for it, would lose more money than they would gain by firing them. I think that the Writers Guild just showed us how labor unions can strike better bargains as well. I think by the Writers Guild saying, oh, oh, you can use as much AI as you want. You just can't fire any of us. They just killed AI for screenwriting, right? Because like, it's not like the studios were like, oh, we want to buy, buy AI to make our writers more efficient. They were like, we want to buy AI so we don't have to pay our writers anymore. If you have to pay the writers the same amount and then buy a $25 million site license from Sam Altman, you're not going to do it, right? Like, no way. And, and then, you know, the other one is what the copyright office has just pointed us to, which is that works that are authored by an AI are not entitled to copyright in the same way that monkey selfies aren't because, you know, in, in the, in the parlance of the absolutely degraded freaks of the world intellectual property organization, copyright in here is at the moment of fixation of a work of human creativity and software generated works are not eligible for a copyright. Bam. Right. And so like, yeah, our bosses want to fire us. But they would rather drink a gallon of warm spit before breakfast every day until they die than give up one millimeter of their copyright. And so if we just say, fine, you can fire as many of us as you want, but then you don't get copyright. Anyone can take your works and copy them and sell them and give them away and whatever. They're just going to be like, oh, no, we'll just pay you guys. So I think all of those are much more successful. Now, on, on the question of like what Google's doing here, it's an interesting gambit. It's not the worst thing in the world for a software company to say, hey, there's like a an unquantifiable form of liability that attaches to using our products and will immunize you from it unless you go to extraordinary lengths to actually bring that liability down on us. And I think the fine print on that Google thing is probably going to settle out to being, unless you like literally type into the prompt, make the most infringing Mickey Mouse image you can, that <laughs> they'll probably immunize you. But like, you know, if you just, if you just say like, you know, make me a, a picture of you know donald trump um at a children's birthday party and it turns out to have an uncanny resemblance to a, a you know a, a painting by uh anish kapoor you know no notorious litigious asshole <laughs> comes after you uh then you know they'll just make you whole which like fair enough right it's if you are going to make a product that creates unquantifiable liability that is like you need like esoteric deep knowledge of a of a really niche area of law to use safely then immunizing the people who use it is is not the worst thing in the world you could do i was wondering yeah. if it was maybe another kind of a choke point though of like you only start then using the ai or whatever of the company that can afford to litigate on your behalf and then everyone's just using google and then that's the only game in town kind of thing well i guess so i mean I, look, I, I don't know I, for sure, because we don't really know how it's all going to play yeah. out. But but um, this is an insurance policy. And like mm. insurance markets are imperfect. But insurance, like, again, is not a terrible idea, right? The idea right. of like pooling risk. You know, it's interesting. After uh, 9-11, I think it was around 2003, I was reading uh, the Financial Times in an airport lounge. And the thing about the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal is that while the editorial pages are absolutely unhinged, the rest of it is like refreshingly fact-based because money talks and bullshit walks. And you can't do culture war nonsense or war on terror, you know, hysterics when you're trying to make money. And so there was this section in the middle that was like, should should firms, should should responsible executives get terrorism insurance for their firms? And they were like, yes, the reason you should do it 
is your shareholders don't know shit about shit. And so they think that terrorism is a real risk, even though it's not. But insurers know the extent to which terrorism is a risk, and they know how small that risk is, and they price it accordingly. So it's only going to cost you pennies. So you might as well just go ahead and buy that insurance, because the risk is really low, and it'll make you know your loudest, stupidest shareholders happy, right? And like it was very bracing to read that advice. <laughs> it's quite, quite good to see the ruling class talking frankly amongst themselves, like Mitt Romney admitting that he thinks that 40% of us should be euthanized because we don't contribute to society, you know? Um, and, and, uh, I just, I just, uh, I I think that like, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that if there were more than one platform offering, uh, image generation tools that they would be able to ensure that risk and Mm. that the insurance would be within reasonable grounds. I just don't think that those insurance policies are going to be just like uh horrible choke points i think they'll be probably mm-hmm. be fine unless unless we just get a bunch of crazy precedent that says that you know this is quintillion dollar liability for one honest mistake and then you know i think it's just going to become radioactive and then i think google will probably say oh yeah no we're not doing this anymore either right like the only reason they're doing it like this is another thing right is the only reason they're doing it is i think they're reasonably confident that the liability risk is pretty low makes sense yeah okay that was the news Now, we are here to talk about your work, but uh, we have talked a lot about productivity and you are quite prolific and you talk about some of your your like your schedule on your podcast. And I was just curious if you could like walk us a little bit through like when you're writing nonfiction, like like these two books we're going to be talking about. I noticed they both have like a two part structure that you've been kind of writing up pieces and articles and then podcasting. I mean, um, how how would you describe like kind of your process for writing um as, a, as like a, as a ritual or as uh, something else. And we have a lot of uh, library school students or people right. who are considering going into library school as our listener base. So they probably really are really interested. So I would say that like the, the best thing that ever happened to me was when writing stopped being a ritual. Uh, mm. It's um, rituals require a certain luxury of choice of time of place and, and, uh, um, and, and conditions and uh, rituals are also metastatic. So one day it's like, oh, I'm just going to fold the laundry before I write. And the next day it's like, I'm going to also put away the dishes before I write. And then it's like, finally, you're like, I'm dancing Wittershins thrice around my home, uh, you know, with mud rubbed in my navel before I sit down and write. <laughs> and, and I, um, you know, I, I, look, I, I think most writers start the way I did, which is they do it out of a whim uh, or maybe a school assignment or something. And it just feels good. And they keep doing it for a while. And it's just nice. You get inspired, you do it. And like, that's the kind of cook I am, right? Like every now and again, I'm like, you know, I really fancy an X. And then I look, try to look for like maybe a takeout that has X. And then I'm like, you know what? I could make X. It'd be good. And then I look up a recipe and then I go get some groceries and I make X. That's fine, right? That's cool. Uh, I am I have no desire to be a professional chef. It is fine for me to just be someone who enjoys cooking uh, from moment to moment, but when it's your job, right? You, you gotta be able to write even when you don't feel like it. Cause you gotta, you gotta make the words occur on the page. Um, or, you know, you're not going to pay your mortgage or your insurance premiums for your healthcare or whatever. And so like, that's very important. So I started writing whenever I was inspired. And then I reached a point where I really wanted to make a living writing and I was getting some writing assignments and I was selling some work 
And uh, I had to figure out how to write when I wasn't inspired. And in particular, there's this transition between my first novel and my second, where I went from having written the first novel while mostly living at home in Toronto, where I'm from, uh, while having a very busy life, but being able to like carve out a couple of weeks here and there to do it. I didn't have kids at a startup I was doing, but, but still I, I could take vacations and stuff and just focus and bear down on the project. And then by the time I was doing the second and third books, I was the European director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a nonprofit I've worked for now for 22 years, uh, including a lot of work with libra- libraries, uh, with IFLA and Eiffel. I helped draft the Access to Knowledge Treaty that became the Marrakesh Treaty, which is the first treaty WIPO ever passed on the rights of information users. Uh, and it safeguards the rights of people who have uh, sensory and physical disabilities to access copyrighted works. So I was, you know, on the road 27 days a month. I stopped plugging in my fridge because it cost me 10 bucks a month to keep my ice cubes frozen. Uh, I uh, was in 31 countries in three years and I had books to write. And I had this uh, really like thunder striking realization, which is that although there were days where, um, I felt like I was writing really well and days when I felt like I was writing really poorly. And although in retrospect, when I reviewed the work prior to submission, there were passages that were really good and passages that needed to be scrapped and rewritten, that these were not correlated, that the correlate of feeling like I was writing badly was lack of sleep, stress, anxiety, problems at work, problems in my personal life, but not the quality of the words. And I had to find a way to sit down at the keyboard and feel the most irrefutable, intense feeling that I was about to write the worst words ever committed to hard drive by human fingers, and then just write those words anyway, because maybe they were, but maybe they weren't. And even if they were, I could fix them later. And if you've ever seen the VR demo where you put a plank down on the carpet and you put the VR headset on and then it projects an image as though you were standing on a plank protruding from the top of the Empire State Building and you have to walk along the plank. And when you see videos of people doing it, they're just like in the most atavistic terror, right? They just, they like intellectually, they know that they're standing on a carpet, but every fiber of their being is like, you are about to die. And that's what the feeling is, right? You have the feeling and then you just do the thing anyway. And thankfully I'm not that bright. So it took me 10 years to realize the corollary of this, which is that on the days where I felt very proud and and satisfied because I'd written something really well, it was possible that I just written garbage. Uh, And then the whole thing got a little anhedonic for a while, but, uh, but, but this um, ability to sit down and just do the words that you need to do that day uh, very, very, very important. And, um, in particular for nonfiction, but also to a lesser extent for fiction, being a blogger really helped. So I helped start a website called Boing Boing again, about 2022, 20, 23 years ago. Um, I left in 2020, although I'm still a co-owner of it. And it was one of the first widely read blogs. And I wrote between five and 20 posts nearly every day. Uh, for nearly 20 years, tens of thousands, probably 50,000 posts all in all. And um, the act of taking everything that crossed my transom that seemed of some significance, and rather than scribbling a cryptic note to myself in a notebook that I would never decipher, applying the rigor to explain what seemed important about it to a notional audience of strangers, 
was both good discipline, but also good record keeping. That what I ended up with was a literal database, right? A WordPress database that I can query that has like everything I've thought for 20 some years. And also a kind of subconscious, super saturated solution of fragmentary ideas for stories and novels and books and essays and speeches that periodically will kind of glom together and nucleate and crystallize into a whole long synthetic work. And um, it means that when I have an idea, generally that idea is quite complicated. It's quite mature. It has a lot of ornaments and struts and uh, elements that kind of make it more than just like the, uh, a single kind of high concept line. And then I also have all my references just like sitting in a database, which I can just pull up by looking at my WordPress installation. And you combine both of those and you get a, a kind of compositional like um, underpinning that makes the commitment to, if you're working on a book, writing 500 words every day or a thousand words every day or however much you're doing every day, makes it much more straightforward, especially when combined with that emotional outlook towards the work. Yeah. I, I was, I was really glad I brought this up because this is venturing into like uh digital garden ideas, which we've talked about before. So taking an idea, planting a seed, tending to it, Maybe it doesn't go anywhere, building it into uh, a fully cultivated idea. It's, yeah. it, I, I, I imagine that was kind of maybe your process, but it's, I'm, I'm really glad to hear it. Yeah, iteration. You know, you write a, you try to explain this abstract, ridiculous, complex, and esoteric thing like um, the relationship of digital rights management to competition and technological self determination, which is like just this thing that is you know, eye glazing on its face, right? And then you exp- try to explain it to normies or even to people who've got like a dog in the fight, right? To technologists or to people interested in business and competition or policy. And you you watch where they, they, they stub their toes. And then the next time something comes up in the news that seems related, you do it again and you try to try to avoid that same tripping hazard the next time you tackle it. And you do it over and over again and you develop a vocabulary and a repertoire of analogies, metaphors, phrases that help people grapple with these complex technical ideas. And then when it comes time to, you know, spinning them out into a longer work, uh, like a book, well, you've got a lot of, um, you know, they, 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 the, the term stereotype comes from, um, a thing that a typographer would precast. They would cast a phrase in lead so that when it was time to use it, they could just slot it into the type uh, hod, right? You you have these kind of these these anecdotes from central casting that you can just slot in to help you develop these esoteric points at, at longer length. Yeah, or in my case, memorize lines from movies and uh, folk punk songs that succinctly explain my politics. Uh, there you go. There definitely you go. <laughs> not a diagnostic criteria of anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you for answering that question. Should we start with the basics of enshittification? I've heard you uh, explain it a few times. I thought sure. I, I, I might save you the, the effort and go through it. So it's it's ultimately a rent-seeking process. First, the platforms are good to their users. Then they abuse their users to make things better for their business customers, which are usually uh, advertisers. 
Finally, they abuse the business customers to draw back all the value for themselves, and then they die. And uh, you wrote, it's an an inevitable consequence arising from the combination of the ease of changing how a platform allocates value, combined with the nature of a two-sided market, where a platform sits between buyers and sellers, held each hostage to each other, raking off an ever-larger share of the value that passes between them. That's a great, succinct uh, definition. I would add one further nuance which is that when an industry goes very concentrated, it becomes easy for it to uh, capture its regulators. And on the one Mm -hmm. hand, that frees the industry from constraint. So we see the tech industry acting as though neither labor nor consumer protection nor uh, privacy laws apply if you're violating them with a computer. And on the other hand, it allows you to apply constraint to other people's conduct. You know, as Jay Freeman calls this felony contempt of business model. So you know, you can spy on me with an app, but if I reverse engineer the app in order to put a privacy blocker in it, that's a felony under section 1201 of the DMCA. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's not a lack of regulation nor an excess of regulation, but rather too much regulation imposed on people who do things that displease the monopoly and too little regulation applied to the monopoly itself. I I immediately wanted to try and and apply this to like a library world issue. And because I do scholarly communication, I thought academic journals. Perfect. Sure. So in the 1940s. Also overdrive. (laughs) Overdrive. That's on there too. (laughs) We're academic. Well, Sadie probably, Sadie probably does stuff with overdrive, but Justin and I are are both academic librarians. and So I have to deal with overdrive as much. We are sorry, Sadie, who probably has to deal with it all the time. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. I, I, I interrupted. I beg your pardon. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, yeah, I, I actually had something about ebooks, and I was like, nah, do I want to go down that rabbit hole in particular? I like I like explaining the, the academic journal publishing, though, because uh, when you work with faculty all the time, you you get to work with their egos as well, which is like a great side benefit. And so you get to see like their little like dreams of empire and things like that. Like mm-hmm. you were saying, like imagining that they are a CFO that is is. is like I, I helped someone go over a book contract the other day and I was like, you're not going to get anything out of them, but um, <laughs> not legal advice, not legal advice. You should talk to a lawyer, but you know, that sort of thing. But there was a, there was a large amount of like government funding that, that created a big investment and in, like the explosion of academic journals, which then once the government money starts going away, we start having Elsevier, Springer, Nature, Wiley, Taylor, and Francis have eventually eaten all these up and they give really nice parties to academics, which I am, Really pissed that I missed out on the era of that. Um, you get prestigious titles, you get peer respect, and you get metrics, which are, of course, the, the metrics are proprietary. So these are, I'm seeing as the initial users, is the academics. Yeah. Then you become a volunteer laborer and you tie your em- employment to doing free labor for the platform. And I, I compared that to like doing, like, if Twitter goes away, I get commissions off Twitter, I get job interviews off Twitter, that sort of thing. Even worse, because it's like, if I don't publish in the right journal, I don't get tenure and I lose my job. Business partners in this scenario are the libraries that they sell to, this free labor, and act as partners. And we're we're basically information providers. You provide information, we provide information, we being the publishers. And then clawing back value from the libraries, we're trying to do open access. So that's preventing what's called leakage. So uh, instead of allowing us to have self-archiving in you know, locally controlled electronic databases like our institutional repositories, everything needs to go through this little gift link. And it goes back to their page where they scrape data, which, of course, they want to use that data to sell to a new business partner, the government, 
uh, intelligence agencies, landlords, and law enforcement. And then they be, they transform from publishers to cartels of data. I was hoping the last bullet point there would be, and then they die, but that didn't happen. So yeah. uh, instead yeah. they just became a worse, <laughs> a worse pseudo-government organization that is not subject to many privacy laws. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you said that very well, uh, uh, particularly the end where you talk about them being pseudo-government. I mean... I think the um, that a lot of people assume that the uh, if the state doesn't regulate, it means you have a regulation-free environment, and instead, what you end up with is is large firms or cartels that make the rules and decide who else can exist and what they can do. They end up structuring whole markets. Think of how Amazon decides literally what can be sold in America. I mean, you know, if something's not available for sale on Amazon, it might as well not exist. And so, you know, we, we maybe you worry that the FDA is cracking down too much on your favorite supplement vendor or whatever. But Amazon has far more influence over what is for sale where you live than any government regulator. And so, yeah, they become a kind of private government. And I, I think that your account of how the the sector rose and rose is a good one. I would make explicit that the growth was largely driven through acquisition, right? That Mm -hmm. there were lots of academic publishers that were merged to monopoly by investors who are prepared to funnel effectively unlimited amounts of capital to firms that are doing these roll-ups with the expectation that as you reduce competition, you increase profitability. You know, as Peter Thiel says, competition is for losers, there's a, a great new book by Yanis Varoufakis called Techno-Feudalism, where he elucidates an important distinction between profit and rent. And, you know, a, a lot of leftists get angry when you try to make this distinction. They say, well, like, um, profits, rents, it doesn't matter. It's all coming out of the surplus labor, or surplus value generated by workers. And that may be so, but, like, this is an important fracture line in the ruling class. So if you think about the origins of the fights between profit and rent, you know, you have feudalism and under feudalism, you have lords who own things. They own land and you have peasants who work the land and the peasants are bound to the land. They are not allowed to leave there. It is the law that they are hereditarily bound to the land and they owe a rent every year to the Lord. It doesn't really matter how the crops perform. The Lord gets the same amount of rent. If the peasants next door come up with a better way to grow crops, the Lord can, you know, do some praxis sharing with his peasants and he'll reap the rewards or or not if, if that's how he chooses to roll. But it's not like if the peasants next door are doing better, the Lord goes out of business. The Lord gets the rent no matter what. And, and so that is what rent is. Rent is owning a thing that people who want to do something productive need to pay you for. And profits are what capitalists get as opposed to feudalists. Profits are when the capitalists come in and they say, kick the peasants off the land, proletarianize them, grow sheep on that land so that we can build factories that will turn the sheep's wool into an industrial product, textiles. And we will own the capital, we'll own the factory, and we'll site it on land that used to be owned by a lord, that is owned by a lord, that used to be worked by peasants. And um, we will invest in that capital. And if the capitalist down the road has better machines, 
then we will go out of business. And so we'll invest in machines and they'll invest in machines and we'll be in a race to see who can extract the most profit, not just by alienating workers from the product of their labor, but also by continually innovating in the creation and deployment of capital, right? You read the the first chapter of, of, of the Communist Manifesto and it's just like Marx and Engels geeking out about how incredibly productive this system was, right? How uh, innovative, imaginative, how, you know, capitalists that like the, the, if you, if you say to the capitalist, uh, innovators starve, they will innovate. And, um, rents are not liable to competition. If you own a building that has a coffee shop in it, that is to say capitalist enterprise, and the coffee shop goes out of business because a better coffee shop opens down the street, you now have a vacant unit in a, in a block with a great new coffee shop in it. That's great, right? You as the landlord, the rentier, the person who makes your money from rents, you're doing great even if the person who is making the profits has gone out of business. And, you know, Steinbeck is reported to have said that socialism never took hold in America because Americans are all temporarily embarrassed millionaires. It's not even clear if he ever said it. And I don't know if it's true, but the one thing that I think is absolutely true is that every capitalist is a temporarily embarrassed, embarrassed feudalist, right? Mm. Capitalists do not like having to make money by competing. Capitalists really want to make money by owning things that other people who compete use, which is why... You know, there are, I think, $6 trillion businesses in the world. If you take out Saudi Aramco, the remaining five are just rent-seeking American companies. Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft. I forget what the other one is. But yeah, I mean, there's the, the, the just it's just rent, rents, people who make money from their rents by owning a thing someone else has to use to do something productive. And some of them actually also do productive things, like Apple makes phones and collects rent on the App Store. And, and the difference between a feudal society and capitalist society is not whether all the rents go away or all the profits go away. It's when profits and rents come into conflict. If profits win, then you have a capitalist society. And if rents win, you have a feudalist society. And today you have things like the East District of Texas patent courts, where patent trolls who claim to have invented things that they never really invented, they just like sketched out, you know, a way of using a computer to do a thing. And then someone at the USPTO granted them this incredibly overbroad patent can sue companies that I have no love for, you know, Apple, or Google, Samsung, whatever. They can sue them in the Eastern District of Test- Texas and they win. They get to just collect rents from productive businesses. And so I, I think what you're talking about when you talk about the the transformation of academic publishing and this acquisition strategy that consolidated the sector is this drive by capitalists to become rentiers, right? The, mm. the, to, to, to abolish competition in favor of ownership uh, and a guaranteed income like UBI for rich people that is kind of upstream of, of all of these effects that we see on knowledge production and organization and the way that you see the alienation of creative and scholarly work by these predatory journals. And, you know, they have all the hallmarks of enshittification. They are squeezing the libraries, they're squeezing the suppliers, so they're squeezing the buyers and the sellers sitting between them. They have captured their regulators, you know, think about how, you know, conduct that is true to the spirit of, of the academy, like uh, the organization and promulgation of Sci-Hub or the work that Aaron Swartz was doing when he crawled JSTOR has, you know, becomes a, a, a not just a civil matter, but actually a, a jailable felony. And, you know, you have the felony content of business model. You have the, the whole 
package of unshittificatory conduct wrapped up in an industry. And that industry is not how we search the web and it's not how we you know, talk to our friends. It's like how we organize all human knowledge and all, and, and how we advance all human knowledge, which is a really terrifying thing. I, I, you know, to end that rant on maybe a positive note, the, the good thing about all of this is that because it is identical formally to so many other extractive arrangements, the allies that the people who are on the wrong side of this extractive arrangement have are effectively unlimited. Like there are so many people, like everyone with an OnlyFans is living through the same thing as uh, academics who are publishing in Elsevier, as is every Uber driver, as is everyone who's trying to like syndicate their work on Twitter. And the, the mass movement that is latent in that commonality is so large and unstoppable that it really like feels like like it just takes some explaining about these esoteric ideas to a sufficiently large group of people to have everyone realize, oh, we are all on the same side against the Rontiers. Yeah, this reminds me a little bit of um, something you say in uh, Choke Point Capitalism about how like the focus on like the the consumer and their prices and their experience often comes at the expense of the creators and the workers. And often like you hear horror stories in academic libraries about, you know, Elsevier and all of these other, you know, companies make all of these electronic resources uh, and subscriptions like so expensive. And also in public libraries, like how overdrives are fucking over everyone. And then, you know, you'll have like entitled faculty and I don't want to like, you know, those entitled faculty are also my comrades who I'm in solidarity with, right? We are on the same side in this fight, but maybe they don't realize it yet. Uh, <laughs> Cause they're always like entitled faculty are always the ones who are like you unsubscribe from the journal that only I care about. And, and we go, but the budget, right. because those prices are going up and the university, even though it always says that a university is just a library with a bunch of buildings around it, you know, whatever the adage is, I don't, I don't care um, because they don't mean it um, because they don't actually give us more money each year as these costs go up. And so then faculty go, oh, well, then why do you need so many librarians? Isn't everything online now? <laughs> and the university goes, you know what? You're right. And then they start getting rid of the tech services that deals with all of the metadata and the knowledge organization. They get rid of the electronic resources librarians and they start getting rid of reference librarians too. And so then, oh, well, we can get your journal back. But then the way that you find it, like there's fewer and fewer librarians who actually like are hired now to do the work of making sure that these resources are like accessible and findable and discoverable that the, that the user interfaces like aren't bullshit and make sense. And also um, aren't in Israel. Uh, you get like all of these other like things where even if we have the fucking journal, people can't find it anyway, right. or it's like a pain in the ass to use. And so then we're all fucked. And so well, I'm hoping that maybe universities are in the find out of the fuck around and find out like <laughs> process it's like well what happens if you just don't have the labor to do the stuff anymore you're about to find out like right i i would always like tell faculty like by the way the book you want me to buy costs this much for this license and this much for this license and this much for this license then they go are you fucking kidding me and i go nope <laughs> and then they get mad and then then we get solidarity 
Yeah, well, and you know, presumably having skilled library workers around who've got longitudinal experience of the journals and the bargaining that the institution has done with them is a, a precondition for bargaining well, right? Like if you take everyone who's ever gone eye to eye with the publishers uh, and and you know put them on the breadline, the next time the publishers show up and tell you what the standard deal is, they can just like take you to the cleaners because there's no one around who has the institutional knowledge to know what is and isn't a fair bargain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a working group for contracts via via Spark. It makes me very much want to have a specialized contract negotiations librarian because they are worth their weight in gold because they can go a la carte. Okay, all day. I can do this all day. I can renegotiate this journal, this journal, this package, this package. And we have, but like, I've never worked at a university that had one. And now I'm like, why don't we all? Right, right. You know, I worked um, with Eiffel to stand up uh, an NGO called. Uh, Access to Information Africa. It was based in in Entebbe in Uganda, and it was when the U.S. trade rep and the academic publishers were working to decertify East African universities if they had photocopiers in their libraries. And uh, you know, Eiffel, like its its big mission is helping libraries, particularly libraries in the global south, but libraries all over, come together to negotiate deals for electronic journal access. And, you know, Access to Information Africa was was trying to bring that expertise into East Africa at this, like, key moment when, you know, Kenya, Uganda, all these other libraries were being, um, uh, all these other universities in, in East Africa were being squeezed in order to make sure that they, that n- no one ever made a course pack in the, in the library. Yeah, I hate copyright and copyright's bad. <laughs> I don't hate copyright. I just think a little goes a long way. And, it, and, it's, and you know, like the right copyright is, is better than the wrong copyright. And that is true. You know, yeah. Look, there's nothing wrong with having exclusive rights regimes in the supply chain of the arts sector. There are times when they've worked to the benefit mm-hmm. of creative workers, but like which one and under what circumstances we're kind of getting into the thesis of choke point capitalism, which is like, how is it that we made copyright last longer, cover more works, have higher statutory damages, uh, restrict more activities, and have a lower bar for proving infringement. And the sectors that use copyright, the entertainment industry, has gotten bigger and more profitable. And yet the share of income going to creative workers has fallen both proportionally in real terms over that time. And the answer is that like individual bargainable rights are very sensitive to market conditions, right? If you give a creative worker more copyright in a landscape with five publishers, four studios, three labels, two uh, um, ad tech companies, and one company that does all the ebooks and audiobooks, or one company that does all the concert promotion and venues, then it's just like giving the bully kid extra lunch money, right? Like there isn't an amount that you give that person that leads to them eating. And moreover, if you give them enough lunch money, the bullies will have enough left over after they've, you know, paid for their, their, their wants and needs to like launch an international ad campaign saying, think of the hungry children, they need more lunch money. Right. And, (laughs) and so, you know, the, the, the thing that we have to attend to is not like what rights do you have, but what rights do you have in the conditions under which you bargain? And that's the, that's the dispositive element. That's the thing that's the best predictor of of the distributional mm-hmm. outcome of of who gets how much from the from the system, and you know a, a tenet of neoliberal economics is that it's we shouldn't pay attention to how much of the pie you're getting. You should only pay attention to how big the pie is getting, 
And sure, like if your share stays at roughly a third, but fluctuates a little as the pie doubles in size, that's fine. But if your if your share dwindles to like a homeopathic dose, it doesn't really <laughs> matter how big the pie is. Yeah. Plus, they it feels like it's gotten more complicated. Like like I said, I'm a, a music librarian, and I get a lot of um, of my I, I I work at a conservatory, and I get a lot of students who are interested in doing like arrangements. Uh huh. And the fucking like looks on their faces as we're like investigating things together. And I'm like, by the way, I'm not a lawyer and I know more about music copyright than anyone in this building. Um, and <laughs> I'm confused. And they're like, what's going on? Like to the point where one student, like one of my student students that I've helped like works at like one of the local coffee shops. And after a two hour consultation, that was only supposed to be like 30 minutes because we were just like, what the fuck is going on? He just wants to make an arrangement for viola. Right. It's like, he's, he was like, what's your, what's your coffee order? And I will get you a free one from the shop that I work <laughs> at next time I'm in the library. And I'm like, you do not have to do that. And he did anyway. No, that's he was very like, nice. That was the most fascinating thing I've ever seen in my life. Just watching you like get into the zone about it. But it's like, I do that. Like, yeah. like so much of my time is taken up just trying to like help students navigate this system when they just want to make like really cool work or work that like would be like useful or helpful in their careers. Right. And the sad thing is that even if they master the subject and are able to make good assessments about what they can and can't do within a kind of reasonable set of risk parameters, it doesn't mean that any of the industrial actors they work with in their careers will allow them to Mm -hmm. take those risks. You know, I just, um, my publisher who are quite reasonable and have generally had my back in many cases at, at Macmillan, I wanted to use two stanzas from a Woody Guthrie song. So this is Woody Guthrie who wrote, this land is my land. You know, one side of the sign said private property. The other side didn't say nothing. That side was made for you and me. Woody Guthrie used to publish his songs with a thing at the bottom that said this sign, this song is copyright under seal of copyright number, whatever. Uh, write it, sing it, swing it, yodel it, dance to it. That's what. Uh, that's what. what why we wrote it. That's all we want you to do, right? Woody Guthrie, four lines. Early Creative stanzas. Commons license. Yeah. And I had a backing opinion from the lawyers who wrote the most widely used intellectual property casebook in American law schools. And I still lost the argument with my publisher. They were like, you can't, no epigram. Because they're just like, look, you know, we have, we have, we, if, if we ever get hit with a lawsuit and our insurance underwriter says, well, how conservative are you being? And they go and they look at this and they go, oh, well, there's no permission of the Woody Guthrie estate here. You are not being very conservative. And you know the, the publisher's insurer spends a million dollars defending a lawsuit. They're going to go back and they're going to go, well, your, your conduct was reckless. Even if you won this one, your conduct was reckless. And um, we're not going to write your policy anymore, or we're going to jack your premiums. So they're Mm -hmm. just doing, you know, we talked about insurance before. They're just, they're responding to the structure of the market. And one of the, I'm a great proponent of fair use, but one of the problems of fair use is it's fact intensive. And it's hard to judge at the outset what fair use will be. And that Mm -hmm. can be a virtue because mores change and things that wouldn't have been considered fair uh, become more widely considered fair. Uh, but also mores change and things that were once considered fair go back in the proprietary box. And uh, it's, I've lived through both 
And um, it is very hard to handicap the chances of a specific use being found fair in a court. And you can see why no one wants to take their chances. Yeah. Yeah. Like Kyle Courtney, a friend of the pod, and uh, we've had him on uh, before. Um, and he's always like, I've taken uh, a lot of his like copyright first responders, like courses mm-hmm. and fair use courses and everything. Uh, he always buys me expensive scotch at conferences. He's oh, working. very nice. Yeah. And, and he's like, he's like, you know, fair use is always about risk. Yeah. Like, copyright is always about risk and librarians. We have to be more comfortable taking higher risks, which I agree with, but we might be comfortable taking them. But then the institutions we work for are like, no, you don't. And then we can't right. do what we, what we would be willing to risk because they are more conservative than we are. And so it, then you just, then it doesn't even matter. Right. That was one of my critiques again of, of the, the internet archive taking the risk for making the, the emergency temporary access was look, we, we, it could go badly. And, you know, I realize that I, I've probably more or less been proven wrong on this, which is rare. That's fine. <laughs> no, no one, no one seems to be stopping their controlled digital lending, but I know if I go, I want to do controlled digital lending. And if our legal counsel has heard about this case, that's just a pain. My whole beef about the internet archive case was it just affected me personally. and made me like <laughs> slightly more annoying. Well, look, I understand why they did it. I am in great fear that they're going to lose. I don't think anyone knows for sure how that's going to work out. And it's not just the one CDL case. It's also the 78s case where they're going after Brewster Kale personally. And losing the Internet Archive would be a blow to information and the free, fair and open Internet that it's hard to articulate just how bad it would be. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about it too. I mean, I understand why they took a risk and I am generally the person saying, take risks, take risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but boy, uh, when you fuck around and then you find out it can feel like maybe you shouldn't have fucked around. <laughs> Thank you. Jesus. <laughs> I've just finally, someone's validating me. on this. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. and to be, to be clear, I think that they're in the right and I hope they win. I just don't know if they're gonna. Right. I was just I'm, mad that they lied about one fact about it because I was like, "Yeah, you take that risk. This is fair use. I'm in your corner." And then they're like, "By the way, we haven't been verifying the things that we said we were." And I was like, "God damn it!" Yeah. <laughs> well, and they had another problem, which is that after the Patriot Act passed, Brewster went in and ripped out all the analytics so that he couldn't had no patron records because this was when the ALA and everyone really worried that they were going to come for patron records. And so Mm -hmm. he just literally doesn't have any record of what has happened. You know, like he knows if someone's checked out a book, but after they checked it out, he doesn't know that they checked it out. It's just, it all disappears. And, and so when the publishers and the writers groups started arguing about the substitutive effect that this was having, he didn't know what people were borrowing and he didn't know how they were using it. And they very cautiously, implemented uh, a few little bits and pieces of analytics so that they could say fairly authoritatively, like, look, almost everything is out of print. People's checkouts are for under 30 minutes. They go and they get, you know, um, a, a page from a book and they look it up and then they put the book back. And this is clearly not substitutive. No one is like, oh, I really need to reference that quote. I'm going to go buy the book new. Uh, and so it's not substitutive, but like, it took them so long to be able to say that authoritatively for, you know, the good reason that they didn't want to spy on their users, but it's just this like very bad combination of factors. 
And, yeah. you know, the other thing is that publishing was full of people who were losing their minds at the time. Like, remember, publishing's in New York, right? These are all people who all they heard for months was sirens, where there were like refrigerator trucks full of corpses on their blocks, right? They freaked the fuck out. There were massive layoffs in their businesses. They were talking about, um, uh, about um, mass graves in Central Park if they ran out of space to bury people in New York. So these people were like absolutely freaking out. And then this comes along and they hear these scare stories about, about the archive, you know, eroding their revenue and they just, they just lose it. Yeah. It's a confluence of a lot of things. I didn't, didn't consider. You mentioned earlier Sci-Hub and, and we've been talking a little bit about um, like contracts and, and, and one of the things to talk about in the, the internet con is competitive compatibility and interop. Mm-hmm. And one thing that can one one possibility of of in, increasing interop so that there aren't such massive tie-ins of of particular platforms and, and like we mentioned uh, academic publishing it made me think of countries where SciHub is more or less not uh prosec- like pirates themselves are not prosecuted people kind of go well you know this. I know, I know a case is going through India right now where it's like, does this really actually violate our copyright law? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But also that trade agreements fuck this up immensely. And I thought of the the Diego Gomez case where he pirated a master's thesis and was facing like jail time. And then you mentioned, uh, as I was listening to the audiobooks, I took that note of about Diego Gomez. And then right after I mentioned that, um, that the trade agreement caused that terrible law, you mentioned that the anti-circumvention case uh, or no soybean trade. Yeah. Although that was Central America, not South America, but yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the U.S. trade representative has been um, patient zero in a global epidemic of terrible copyright laws. Uh, and, um, these bilateral and multilateral trade agreements are how, uh, some of the worst ideas become kind of enshrined in law and the industrial actors who benefit from them, you know, the large firms who benefit from them, they are quite, uh, upfront and, uh, unashamed about saying like, look, we structure this deal so that um, we force, you know, we, we first, we get America to pass the law. Then we get another country to pass the law and we get them in a trade deal that says that um, America can't rescind the law because they have, they've passed it as well. And the more countries we do that with, the more barriers there are to any kind of democratic reform, because the democratic reform comes at the price of trade deals with lots and lots of countries. And so they, they really see this as a way of putting democracy in chains, right? Of, of moving, creating like a one-way ratchet where you make a policy, but you can never unmake that policy because there's, there's too many penalties associated with unmaking it. And interoperability, you know, the, the power of firms to, or individuals or tinkerers or cooperatives to modify the services that they use to make them more suited to their needs. That is a, a, a really important piece of the history of how technology has developed it, you know, back to Marx and Engels singing the, the praises of, of uh, capitalist creativity in, in the first chapter of the, of the manifesto. This idea that you can remake things, that you can take the things that exist and use them as the substrate for something new has allowed all kinds of actors, for-profit, non-profit, individual, and collective, to remodel the world that they live in, to, to you know, as I say in the subtitle of the book, seize the means of computation. And, you know, the more 
subaltern you are, the less in the room you are when choices are being made about how the technology will work, the more this stuff is important to you. Because, you know, when your needs, your reality, your, you know, to use a cliche, your lived experience is not in, con- in, in consideration when the product is being designed, then you rub up against hard realities that the product doesn't accommodate. And so that's true whether you have a sensory or physical disability. It's true whether you have a familial situation that is not contemplated by the system. You know, I I spent years at one point in my career fighting something called DVB-CPCM, which was a standard for digital television in Europe, Latin America, and Asia that was going to define what a family was so that you could share your movies and your videos within your family unit. And it had like all this flex... I mean, yes, as bad as you imagine, right? So it had flexibilities like if you own a luxury minivan with seatback video and a houseboat and a villa in France, all of these can be incorporated into a single family set of gadgets. But when I said, what if you're like a mom who lives in Manila and a dad who's an itinerant agricultural worker and a son who's building a stadium in Qatar and a daughter who's uh, going to nursing school or, or working as a nurse in California? They were like, well, that's an edge case. And, you know, I think it goes without saying that there are a lot more people whose families look like that than have houseboats and villas in France. And, you know, that this this idea that you have people making calls about things as foundational as like whether someone is or isn't in your family as far as your systems are concerned, who are so far removed from your everyday reality really militates not just for making those people better and smarter, right? Yeah, sure, they should be more careful, but also for having the humility to say that no matter how good and how smart and how inclusive we are, we're not going to include everyone. Um, that, you know, particularly when I was working on, on rights of people with disabilities, um, you know, you think about what it means to be print impaired and you're like, okay, well, we're going to get everyone who has a vision impairment. We're going to think about people who have cognitive impairments, you know, people who are dyslexic and need audiobooks. Uh, what about people who are paralyzed and can't turn pages, right? And the list just kind of goes on and on and on about how um, different people's needs are, how distinctive people's needs are. And, you know, as, as my friend Liz Henry, who's a disability advocate, says, we're only temporarily able-bodied, right? Like all of us are going to have some kind of disability eventually. So this stuff is pretty important, right? It really kind of bears down on, on your own future. And um, the, uh, the point of all of this is that without interoperability, you are stuck trying to find the people who made it and begging them to adapt it for your needs, And the one group of people who can never, ever do that and who cannot ever be in the room when the product is designed is people who don't exist yet, who have problems that don't exist yet. And infrastructure casts a long shadow. The things that we build are going to lurk in our substrates for generations, if not centuries. And if those things are not built with the expectation that the people who encounter them are going to need to adapt them to their needs that you cannot foresee because the circumstances just have never existed on this earth yet, uh, but they will someday, then um, those people are going to curse your memory. Yeah, that just makes me think of Log4J that happened a couple of years ago, where basically the one brick Uh, software got kicked out from underneath everybody and you know the classic xkcd comic to go with that but yeah see also left pad yeah yeah 
But the thing that that makes me think of is just like anybody who works with technology in any way, like I'm not a software developer. I don't do a lot of code. I just help maintain the infrastructure that one library system uses, right? And even I can see how far that infrastructure shadow is. Like even just getting regular updates from Microsoft, it's like this thing that happened 18 years ago is still haunting sysadmins for generations. So why can't we then turn around and apply that to people who are using the technology? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were, I was making Dewey decimal jokes earlier, but think about like the long shot of fucking Dewey decimal cast in your, in your <laughs> library. I mean, leaving aside the fact that he was a sexual predator, right? Like just the, just the bad ideas he had about, you know, organization of information and the extent to which we're just stuck with it. I mean, Library of Congress isn't much better because that's based on Thomas Jefferson's personal library. Sure, yeah. And so like right. his bullshit is also baked into that one. It's yeah. Like, no matter where you go. Yeah. And you know, the virtue of all of those systems is at least you can drill down into the decimal points. Like it is embarrassing that, you know, uh, sects of Christianity that are like so indistinguishable as to be nearly identical have entire like whole digits assigned to them. But religions that have a billion adherents are buried seven decimals deep. But at least it's like infinitely divisible, right? You know, like at least you can just keep drilling down and adding stuff to it. It is extensible, at least to that that extent. I was always bad at Dewey. <laughs> yeah. Well, I helped a monastery move their library one time, and so it was like a. B B S B S B S B S B S B S B S B S B S B S and then in like uh uh C through Z. So it was great. What was BS? Biblical Bible studies. Oh wow. Amazing. That's great. So yeah. I learned a lot of BS that day. That's very funny. Yeah. I, I am kind of curious, though. I want to ask you, with Interop, you're, you're saying, like, smaller countries should allow Interop immunity. But yeah. we just talked about these bad trade agreements. I mean, do you see the U.S. retaliating or at least taking time? Like, how, would it take a long time for the, to retaliate the trade deals? So, you know, there's, there's more flexibility in the um, anti-circumvention regimes in some of these trade agreements than you would think. So like, for example, Chile has very broad exemptions for uh, circumvention that doesn't result in infringement. And so like, you you know, Chile could, I think, hypothetically just make like um, bypass devices to allow independent mechanics to diagnose cars without like any risk, which is a thing that no one in America can make. And I think, you know, the world would beat a path to their door. You could just sell like a billion of those. And, and I also think there are a bunch of countries where, especially now that we're moving towards a more multipolar world that us just can't smack around the way that they used to there, you know, there's always the like, well, we're going to, we're going to withdraw us aid from your country. And they're like, Oh really? Cause someone just asked us if we'd be interested in a little Chinese belt and road over here. And they'd be like, Oh, wait, 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 let's not be too hasty. So there's some of that as well. And, you know, I don't understand why countries that are just like off the map, like uh, Iran and, and North Korea, aren't just like making circumvention tools. Like if North Korea is going to like steal $500 million from Axie Infinity. Why aren't they like just making, you know, ripping tools for, for you know, stream rippers and whatever, you know, they, something something that like there's a giant market for that people would actually enjoy. I wanted to title back to libraries because that's uh, sort of our thing here. Um, no matter how far off the beaten path we get, sure. um, we've got it. We're a little contractually obligated. 
and talking about like the the contracts and particularly in internet con you talk about the the possibility of using removing NDAs um, at the state level removing which is something I, I'm already involved in is everyone who who negotiates these journal packages with Elsevier and everyone else just says we're we're getting rid of the NDAs we're figuring out how to do it because we all want to know what everyone's yeah. paying and what the terms are sure and if you and if you're a public institution they'll say okay you can leave the NDA in but someone he, is, gonna is going it. to FOIA it yeah. So you can leave it in if you want, but we're going to FOIA it. But I was really interested, too, in like, what should our strategy be besides removing NDAs and maybe adding these interop requirements into standards? Say libraries as a consortia help you build a standard that works between Ex Libris and another ILS. I can't think of anyone, Sierra or whatever. Does Sierra still exist? I don't know. Um, hmm. But you've got to not use your your copyright or IP in any way to prevent interop. Like, what, what kind of strategy forms? Yeah. I mean, I think that this is... It's it's a thing that I think we could actually maybe direct some of that crazy energy at library boards and in the state houses where people are like, oh, these libraries, they're wasting the public's money. They're doing things that are you know not in the public interest with the public coffers. I, I think that there is like such a strong argument on both poles of the political spectrum to be made for binding covenants among government contractors not to aggress against interoperators. Like just basically like, look, if we buy a thing from you with public money and then we decide to pay someone else to make it better, you can't stop them, right? Like we just like, if we're going to buy like a, a car for our motor pool from you, you can't make us not choose the mechanic of our choosing or not use the parts of our choosing. Like it's, it's, not not because like you don't deserve to earn a living, but because our job as custodians of the public interest, spending the public's money, is to spend that money wisely. And I, and I talk in the book about how Lincoln only bought rifles and ammo from armorers that used interoperable tooling and, and ammunition sizes. Because like you're the commander in chief. It is embarrassing to go out to the battlefield and say like, sorry, boys, wars canceled this week. Like our sole supplier is not making bullets. Right. And I think that like you could easily see Josh Hawley standing up and saying, like, why are we spending government money on stuff that government can't choose its own repair people for, can't source parts for, can't extend, can't maintain with the suppliers of its choosing? How is it good for us to allow these Beltway bandits to pick the public's pocket? And I could see AOC making that same speech. Right. And I think that like individual librarians are going to struggle to to tell their software vendors interoperability or go home. But as a movement for prudent public administration of public funds in a cash-strapped environment, this makes a lot of sense. The other thing that libraries are, I think, capable of doing is forming consortia to develop some of that tooling internally. Less so when it's tied to content, but as an alternative, like if you can get the ability to export the content into another CMS, another database, another whatever, there's a lot of potential there. And, you know, when Leonard Richardson was working at the New York Public Library under Tony Aggie, he was commissioned to build a new front end to all of the digital collection systems, so OverDrive and so on. 
And he built a thing that reduced the number of clicks to check out uh, media from like 13 to two, but it's also a front end that incorporates like the entire internet archive, as well as LibriVox, as well as overdrive and sits as a layer on top of it and integrates all of them. They, you know, stuck all that code on GitHub under a, a free and open source license, but it's the kind of thing that more formally consortia of libraries could just contribute to and develop. It's exactly the kind of thing that free and open source software works for really well is maintaining public goods among public institutions for a public purpose. And there are libraries all over the world that would contribute to it as well. Now, I think it's just a matter of getting the, the right momentum. I mean, Tony Aggie is still at NYPL. Leonard's been cut loose. I think he's looking for a job if anyone's looking to hire him, but there, there's uh there's, you know, scope for throwing together some of these big library systems. And there's even umbrella organizations like Eiffel and, and of course, ALA and the state LAs that could work on this. Boy, it would put the fear of God into the, into the digital tool providers too. Really would. Yeah. And don't underestimate the extent to which the e-lending shenanigans are not about publisher hostility to libraries. I think that people in publishing are personally extremely sympathetic to libraries, right? That, that including senior execs. They're all like the people of the book, right? They they all have like, you know, giant piles of of damp swollen books next to the toilet, right? Like we we know these people, they're us, right? But they are, you know, they have these commercial imperatives and a lot of what they're freaked out about is like KKR owning this intermediary, you know, overdrive that they are aggressively trying to use to like do to lending what Amazon did to buying and just make it something where the publishers are kind of frozen out. I think the publisher's response to it is ghastly. I think this idea that you can buy fiat, declare an end to circulation of materials by slapping a EULA on them, you know, when, when libraries are like older than, you know, copyright printing, book binding commerce, you know, like it's just, it's just, it is a outrageous for the publishers to just say, well, we, we, you can no longer own a book and circulate it. It's, it's always going to be on a licensed basis. It's, it's not like anyone ever went to publishing and then woke up and said, what do you mean? Libraries do that, right? Like everybody mm-hmm. knew what the deal was with libraries before they ever got involved in publishing. You can't, you can't just like if this, the, the, the pretense of shock that libraries exist is just very thin. But it's it, there is a lot of that animus as intersectoral or inter-industry, and the industry they're angry about is not libraries. It's giant software tech companies that owned by private equity funds. And so, you know, if you could if you could scare the shit out of KKR, you could win over a lot of publishers. Great. I think that's a really good place to end it. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug before we go? Yeah, I should mention, you know, I said I write when I'm anxious. So I wrote nine books during lockdown. And uh, this 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 book that we've been talking about, the Internet Con, that came out in September. But but this book, uh, The Lost Cause, comes out in February, uh, or no, sorry, November. Uh, in in like two weeks as we're recording this, um, and it's a post Green New Deal pre apocalyptic novel uh, set in a world dominated by library socialism, a world of circulating abundance where uh, everything uh, is available, but you don't have to own it. It's like the Great Reset, but run by nice people. Uh, and there's a hardcore reactionary movement of white nationalist militias and seagoing, 
Neil Stevenson LARPing billionaire uh, anarcho-capitalist wreckers who are trying to roll back the the progress of the Green New Deal and and snatch defeat from the jaws of victory and and put us back in a position where all the wildfires, floods, plagues, and so on are just being ignored instead of addressed head on. Uh, and so it's a fun book. Uh, it's gotten great reviews so far from uh, Naomi Klein and Bill McKibben and Ken Stanley Robinson. And and once again, it's called The Lost Cause. comes out on November the 14th. Sounds awesome. It'll be in the notes so people can, I don't know if the pre-order numbers are really important, but yeah. They're, they're important. Have your libraries get it. Yeah, and make sure your libraries get it. Books <laughs> that get run over a scanner on uh, on day one uh, do really are really important for uh, a book's fortune. So yes, by all means, pre-orders matter. And libraries, hey, uh, if you want to get um, electronic versions without a license agreement or any encumbrance, I sell them direct at craphound.com slash shop. And so you can get ebooks and audiobooks without encumbrance. You you need to be able to sideload into your into your management system. But you know, there you go. Great. Thank okay. you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks yeah, for having thank me. You. It's lovely to chat. This All is right. great. Yeah. Thanks. Good night.